This is Guns and Butter. will we will we will exist as characters in their mind this is how they imagine it and I, I hope that it doesn't come to this or they're not able to scale it but those in power imagine that we will be virtualized as almost like characters in the game of our lives and pushed into virtual spaces to consume digital items and even when we are allowed to go out into the actual real world we will be trackable and traceable through wearable technologies and this sort of global biosecurity state that is rolling out with these past systems and digital identity systems will track even our real body as that character in real physical space and then also in virtual space i'm bonnie faulkner today on guns and butter allison mcdowell today's show gaming our lives pay for success finance Allison McDowell is a pioneering independent researcher. Her journey into activism began as the parent of a public school student. In 2013, Boston Consulting Group closed 23 schools in Philadelphia. This led her to begin examining money, power, and influence in her city. Her work interrogates the global finance and technology interests that, under the rising biosecurity state, are advancing a transhumanist program that would virtualize humans as digital commodities to be fed into futures markets to profit hedge funds. What started out as one mom's attempt to rein in standardized testing and educational surveillance evolved into an international effort to catalyze a global peace movement against digital identity and the World Economic Forum's planned Internet of Bodies. Alison McDowell, welcome. Oh, thank you, Bonnie. I'm excited to be here today. I keep up with current events, but because I don't have children, I'm out of touch with what's going on at the very basic level of primary education. For instance, I was taken aback to find out some years ago that cursive writing was no longer taught in school. And then more recently, and this was uh, well before the lockdown, that children are required to do their work on tablets and iPads. Since children are the future, keeping up with what's happening in primary education is key to understanding what is being planned for the future. And as you've pointed out, the future is being planned. There's a tendency for people to think that things just happen or evolve. Could you talk about how being a parent led you into the research you are now doing into how the future is being planned at a global level? Sure. Well, I, I'm based in Philadelphia, and so my child, who is now in college, they spent you know their entire 13 years of uh, you know pre-college education in the Philadelphia public schools, and so we're a, a large urban school district, and m- most people who have um, have children in urban school districts realize that privatization and transformation of schools as profit centers. Um, has been going on for some time. And it's, it you know, it took me a number of years as a parent to realize that the brokenness of our schools was being done on purpose. And it was part of a, a essentially creating markets in data analytics um, and, you know, outside consultancies 
in the schools. Um, and so I got started in 2013 when the Boston Consulting Group was contracted with our school district and they recommend ultimately closed 23 schools in the district and laid off like 3,000 teachers at the time. And so that was sort of my jumpstart into uh, the education space, becoming more familiar with which the way in which children were being taught was being framed as data, data analytics, and that the rollout of the devices into the schools, which is currently being framed as an equity issue. Um, and my question is equitable surveillance, you know, equitable digital surveillance now in your homes um, of children that was happening not through even necessarily sophisticated uh, computer systems where kids could create, but really it was a consumer model of education where children were being fed uh, content increasingly justifying rising class sizes and that kids were just being taught by online education. And even the, even the content that was created was being stored in like Google Classrooms. So it was creating value for these mega um, tech companies that actually have incredible power and are shaping the way you know, our future is unfolding before us right now. And so that was that was my trajectory in through the school system was was looking not only at uh, controlling school policy by outside interests through the data analytics, but then the surveillance element as well. And it's important to know that, I mean, schools have always compulsory education. And this is what I didn't know at the time, you know, because I've, I've just learned a lot it, through you know, my experience and connecting with other people is like ultimately schools are meant to condition the next generation to serve the function of power largely. I mean, that's, you know, powerful interests do not condition lots of free thinkers. I mean, there's, there's an elite class that's allowed to be the free thinkers, but most people are just supposed to toe the line, whatever that next um industrial need is, right? And if that means moving kids off the farm into factories, if that means moving kids from the factories into cubicles or, you know, call centers, it what's coming next, which is what's coming out of the World Economic Forum in the last several years, although it's really been in place since the 70s, is this push towards a global industrially engineered society that is largely run on automation and artificial intelligence and quantum computing and synthetic biology and which the aim of these very powerful interests that that are coming out of the technology and the finance side is to erase physical human bodies and minds as legacy systems and move into finding new ways of extracting value out of this coming generation. And so really the concentration, I'm, you know, in my early fifties, we're hopeless. Like we're not going to be retrofit really into the system. I, I'm sure that there's a plan to like ultimately sort of jettison us as soon as possible so they don't have to pay our pensions, but it's the children, especially the toddlers that in this 2030, 2035 time horizon that they have imagined is who they need to capture into Google's box so that they never actually know what life is um, outside of the, the box of the technology that's been built around them. They're, they're just the fish in the water and they don't even know the water's there. And the school system is a huge part of that. Yes, exactly. My first experience with your work was listening to a webinar that you gave with Joseph Gonzalez, longtime developer in the gaming industry and combat veteran. In your webinar, he commented on a video, well, you both did, a, a video game called Minecraft that is very addictive, and specifically that after children 
or adolescence master Minecraft, they then can move up to even more advanced games. So we're not just talking about fun and games here, but the gaming industry and the military. You have said that understanding gaming and gaming theory is central to everything that is going on. What are these video games all about? Okay, so so this is where people have to sort of uh, come along with me into this mind experiment. So if we if we understand that the the capital functions on growth, you cannot have capitalism without a continued growth process. That's simply how it is. And we have come to a point, and I think as people are understanding this quote unquote great reset that's coming out of Davos and Klaus Schwab, is that there is an understanding that consumer consumption and debt is sort of reaching this tipping point, right? That that we are reaching a point at which we, it is no longer sustainable in our present trajectory, at least the global north, you know, in terms of consumption of material goods. And so this reset that is being framed as stakeholder capitalism, like the newer, kinder version of capitalism, will essentially mean conditioning people to live, and I will say sort of live in air quotes, um, live within smaller physical footprints and virtualized spaces um, in digital environments. And I think, you know, we've seen that over the past year. When I first started doing this work, I had not imagined that there would be some sort of global health lockdown that would precipitate it. But the idea of shifting people increasingly to normalize living online you know, and I remember seeing a number of years ago, I went to a lecture at our free library system, and it was a, a virtual lecture with um, uh, a Snowden. And, you know, he talked about living online, like he was in exile, but he was living, his life was being lived online. And that really has struck with me because we are now living in much more circumscribed, many of us, um, uh, physical areas, but we are being pushed into the virtual world. And that is where the new economic model of capitalist growth is happening. It is not going to crash and burn. The infrastructure has already been set up to create both augmented reality physical world spaces, which I sort of describe as a global prison planet <laughs> of augmented reality of the spatial web. And then there's this parallel world that is linked to the exterior world that is a virtualized world of gaming. And increasingly, the, the, the idea is that we will live in these games, and this has been conditioned. I, I'm not a gamer myself, but that you will have an avatar um, that is coming out of Epic Games based in the Research Triangle area, and their Unreal Engine. They've just launched MetaHumans, which is software that allows people to create very um, accurate representations of humans in a digital space very rapidly, which is something that used to take a lot of time, so that they can literally virtualize you, and there's been a lot of discussion of late about deep fakes and what that means, but that you will live in a virtual world. And the thing is, these worlds, both of the spatial web, where, where uh, sensor networks, the internet of things, the internet of bodies, I live in Philadelphia as a smart city, so we have been seeing the rollout of smart city infrastructure, 5G infrastructure, eventually will be 6G over the past seven years or so, but there is much more to be planned and that will interface with both wearable technology um, and potentially, you know, biosensor technology that is being developed. Um, it's all military R&D. 
and much of the simulations that have been, the, the research comes out of a military space. And so capital will, we will, we will exist as characters in their mind. This is how they imagine it. And I, I hope that it doesn't come to this or they're not able to scale it. But those in power imagine that we will be virtualized as almost like characters in the game of our lives and pushed into virtual spaces to consume digital items. And even when we are allowed to go out into the actual real world, we will be trackable and traceable through wearable technologies and this sort of global biosecurity state that is rolling out with these past systems and digital identity systems will track even our real body as that character in real physical space and then also in virtual space. Uh, there is a shift towards something called globalization 4.0, which is the next phase of globalization where they are not only platforming screen-based labor, but also with haptic robotics and controllers so that you would actually like sit in your bedroom and control a factory halfway around the world. And all of that competition for that work, and I say sort of work in air quotes, would be mediated through your digital identity on blockchain systems. So, so this is all sort of in the works, but it has to still be built out, right? Um, the sensor networks have to be built out. The coding has to be built out. Um, training the artificial intelligence and the machine learning system still have to be built out. And so what I was seeing as a parent um, over the past five to seven years as my child was going through middle and high school was in under the Obama administration, a huge shift towards STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math. You know, we come from a humanities family, very limited on literature, creative thinking, like unless it was in robotics, huge push towards STEM because what those in power knew was that their plan was to build the spatial web, to build the internet of bodies, to build this global prison planet, essentially, and that they needed the children to be willing participants in making that happen. And that it would happen under the guise of a fun game, right? You would code these games and it would be normalized that you would live in gaming environments. And even today in school classrooms, there is a push for like behavioral management systems that are gamified where you're a cartoon and teachers zing children points and script for good behavior that they can then exchange for digital items. And that is all about conditioning kids to live in a virtual economy, which is how sort of the capitalist growth model intends to move, is going to go inward into this other dimension of the virtual world. But the children have to code it. And the Minecraft, which is owned by Microsoft, which also owns HoloLens, or, yeah, HoloLens and uh, which is military technology, um, and is working on the haptic robotics and DNA programming and LinkedIn, the idea of getting children excited to code to Minecraft, which is essentially both a gaming system and a virtual world building system, and it has its own economic layer to it, is to normalize that that is how life happens. I'm speaking with pioneering independent researcher, Alison McDowell. Today's show, Gaming Our Lives, Pay for Success Finance. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Yes, you've brought this up, and I was taught that one of the main characteristics of capitalism is that it must grow or expand. You have written that, quote, in order for capitalism to continue on a beautiful planet of finite resources, the plan is to shift growth 
to digital realms, which is what you've been discussing. How is virtual capitalism going to piggyback on real-world capitalism? Okay, so one of my other research focuses, um, part of my ability to see this, I think, is that I'm living in a city where a lot of these elements are happening. We have a, a very a city with a lot of people that are living on you know very low income. The economic prospects are not great, but then we also have uh, elite universities uh, like Wharton Business School that are plotting out programs of how to sort of manage this transition. And one of the key um, figures, sort of thinkers in this space, his name is uh, Kevin Werbach, and he's a professor at Wharton Business School. And so his two uh, areas of expertise, he's written a book on gamification, which is again about like embedded in behavioral economics and, and nudges. Um, and, and again, that came in very largely under Obama with Cass Sunstein and um, Thaler, this idea of like a behaviorist treatment of behavior through a game, these leaderboards. His other uh, expertise is in blockchain, which is tracking digital assets. And right now people are uh, really fixated on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and this perception of sort of easy money and this gold rush in expansive crypto spaces where many people who are not steeped in the background of Bitcoin, who are new to this area, are not necessarily following parallel developments in like the central banking digital currency system. And, and the way I see it is that ultimately uh, what is coming are markets and human capital uh, markets in controlling people as characters in this online video game, because with automation, they won't really be able to need that many more people to do the quote unquote work. That work will be outsourced to AI and robotics. And so they need a new profit center for the human beings that are left in the equation who are essentially disposable, you know, dispossessed by this next round of you know, enclosures that are happening. And so what is going to happen is in this game, and I sort of call it like the game in air quotes, the game is both in a smart environment in which you are tracked within a smart environment, and we're being normalized for this through the contact tracing, as well as in a gamified environment, that there are whole systems of finance that have been set up called social impact investing that are being framed as benevolent, that are being framed as solving poverty and fixing the environment, that are predicated on an idea of impact data, which essentially enables widespread data surveillance of populations of ecosystems and the full-on financialization of all of that. And that is actually fed through the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals which if people are not looking closely at what is happening with those goals, they are actually an extension now of the World Economic Forum. So it is, it is corporate capture of ostensible true um, needs around poverty and around um, environmental devastation. But the tracking system to run the global capital to, to ostensibly fix the problem as data analytics requires the implementation of these sensor networks that will essentially kill the planet for mining the rare minerals, the energy to run the data centers, the water to cool the data centers, the e-waste. Um, but they need to reframe, essentially capture the progressive mind um, through this idea of sustainability and equity to essentially 
create an artificial intelligence coup of the whole planet of life, natural life on the planet, which sounds kind of fantastical, but that is actually what is happening right now is that the, the smart sensor systems are going in, the satellites are going up. People have been conditioned to unquestioningly think if it says sustainable, it's good that like they would never know that it's Exxon behind it. You know, they don't dig into where the money is coming from for these and the fear-based element that has come through the health situation over the past year has made people really willing to do whatever in terms of even incredible level of surveillance and, and restrictions on civil liberties in the name of safety. And so it's all been sort of very teed up and, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to fathom how it has gotten this way, but my lens, which is different from a lot of people who are contesting this great reset narrative is that this is a logical through line Again, I'm in Philadelphia, you know, with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, but those documents were always, always considered certain groups of people disposable, you know, enslaved people, indigenous people. And that was because of the economics of dispossession and control of people's labor. And so now with what is coming with this planned automation of the earth, uh, all humans, including, you know, the white community is falls under that disposable category. And so really in my mind, what we need to revisit as we are approaching being pushed into this virtualized, militarized video game of behavioral compliance and improvement according to these sustainable development goals is a return to uh, sort of affirming the idea of indigenous resurgence of children of the earth and natural connections and reciprocity and being in right relationship to the earth, which is counter to everything that is actually coming through this technocratic, uh, industrial engineered, simulated world that that is being put out by those in power and looking very much to like the farmers in India, the Sikh farmers in India who are standing in their faith practice to stand up for natural life in the face of sort of this synthetic biology sensor based program. You have pointed out that the gaming industry is the intertwining of military, entertainment, and global finance grounded in military state surveillance, and that the ultimate goal, then, is control and containment, not liberation. Yes. No, it's, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, and that's why I was really glad to get the invitation on this program because a, a book that was really influential for me, and I encourage people to um, to read it, um, especially the the first three chapters, is Yasha Levine's book Surveillance Valley. And I know many people, um, uh, you know, read know of Shoshana Zuboff and surveillance capitalism, but their theses are sort of different. In her framing, is that the the internet has been broken, and it needs to get righted. But Levine's framing is that the internet has always been a military operation and is functioning as intended. And so that is, that is the framing that I use is understanding uh, cloud computing and um, the internet generally is as a military operation. And while it might be convenient and fun and efficient and let us do things, it is, it is conditional. It is all founded on this larger history. So the video gaming industry is emergent out of the warfare fighting simulation industry. And a lot of work in developing this idea of synthetic people, 
of uh, chat bots, conversation bots, and increasingly it will be these avatar characters is being done at the Institute for Creative Technologies, and that's at the um, University of Southern California. And so when that was created, I believe in the late 1990s, uh, it was done with the Army Research Lab and high-level executive at Disney. And so it has been this wedding of, you know, they said, hey, you know, the military wants to do really good simulations and the entertainment and media industry wants to do really good simulations. And how do we collaborate in ways that we can leverage each other's expertise in this area? And so, you know, this work has been done for, you know, almost 20 years going on. And, you know, if you're in those spaces, you probably know. Um, but most people really are not aware that that's what the origins are. And, when I was doing work in the education space, increasingly children were being put onto educational gaming systems. You know, my child actually was on Study Island. So it was linking learning with games and leaderboards, again, conditioning this sort of competitive aspect, but learning according to artificial intelligence-led pathways and feedback loops. Uh, there was a program called Reasoning Mind, which was a math program that was rolled out in Texas, I believe. And Texas is a center of sort of the rollout of this human capital finance industry that's coming. And it had a little chat bot with a little robot, little orange robot, you know, pop-up figure that would be the, the sort of little tutor for the children. And the children were getting attached to this character. And it was acting as though, you know, it was an entity, you know, like kids, their understanding of reality and what's real and what's not real and their emotional connections to things are being manipulated, right? So these gaming systems um, were being woven into the education space and conditioning again to this larger gaming system. And in 2013, the, the Democratic National Convention was in Philadelphia. And the Atlantic Magazine was hosting a number of panels all that week in a sports bar downtown. And they were open to the public. And I had a friend who said that I should really come to this one session that it was about education in the creative economy. And so I, I was able to do that. And I, I went down and I don't normally go to these sorts of things, but it was quite fancy. And they had, you know, open bar in the middle of the day and they had all sorts of gift bags. And, you know, it was quite nice. And they had a panel. And this panel was... There was Suzanne Delbene, who was a former Microsoft from Washington State, who headed the Internet of Things Caucus. And I think Constance Steinkuhler, who had been at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, but now UC Irvine, who was a specialist in uh, gaming in education. And I believe his name is Paul Megan. He's the, the head of Epic Games that I had mentioned in North Carolina and one of our like progressive city council people and the moderator. And so throughout this session, and this was, you know, in 2016, they just kept repeating, this is Paul Megan, that the children needed to be trained to code his video games, which I thought was a really narrow perspective on education in the creative economy, that really the focus of this whole session was about training kids to code the video games. You know, and it wasn't until about a year and a half later that I really came to the realization that he meant they needed to code this virtual world that we were going to be put in. Like that that was this generation's job was to code not his video games, but actually the virtual world. And so Epic Games, um, they have one of their big games is called Fortnite. And it's a it's a multiplayer, you know, war fighting game. And that game was actually scaled with capital from Tencent. 
which is in China. It's one of the largest entities in China. And so Tencent owns 40% of Epic Games, and they help scale Fortnite, which is this fighting game. And Tencent actually has many interests, but they have their own social credit scoring system. They're connected to WeChat Pay that has facial recognition payment systems. Um, They're connected to many of these new digital currency frameworks. And the other element is when you're doing a multiplayer game, there's all sorts of data analytics and socio-behavioral analytics that can come out of these systems, right? And so if you wanted to understand how different uh, communities might engage in asymmetrical warfare, you know, um, you might create a, a, a incredibly popular global video game and like let it run for five or six years around the world. And then you would have all sorts of data analytics about sort of the psychometrics of different populations. You know, do they play Fortnite differently in Alabama than London, than Goa, than, you know, what, what is the culture? What is the, the, the strategic or collective mindset of these different groups? And, and again, conditioning kids to, um, you know, digital economic systems and socializing online through gaming. Um, Cory Doctorow has a really good book called For the Win for Young Adults that, that, that taught me a lot about sort of these virtual worlds and virtual economics. So, um, you know, I think it's a militarized space. Um, Kevin Werbach, again, from Wharton, he, you know, speaks to the Wharton alumni who are the ones setting up this game. And he says, you know, a lot of people don't even know they're in a game. And the best place to be is to be the designer of the game because then you get to set the rules. And if what we imagine in this next set of of financial institutions are not just selling video games, it's not about the, the sales of video games or the sales of pharmaceuticals or the sales of products. It's actually, as Zuboff speaks to, behavioral surplus and predictive analytics and making predictions about behavior change. And that is what the sustainable development goals are. And that is what has been set up by the Global Impact Investment Network with Judith Rodin and the Rockefeller Foundation and the Impact Management Project is that they are setting up the game in measured behavior change according to set standards and then tracking everyone as an entity on their game board. But they can ultimately change up the rules whenever they want. I'm speaking with pioneering independent researcher Allison McDowell. Today's show, Gaming Our Lives, Pay for Success Finance. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So when someone interacts with virtual space online, is that person simultaneously being profiled? So there are a number of things that are still in process. Um, The predictive profiling necessitates having interoperable data. So in previous years, our data lived and was scattered about in all sorts of different places. And their goal is to create, um, the World Wide Web Consortium has been working for a long time on self-sovereign, they call it self-sovereign digital identity. And they would like to create likely blockchain, an interoperable data system that represents all of you, all of your digital dust, you know, everything from, you know, where you parked on the street on your pay 
you know, credit card parking space to your birth certificate, to your property, to your jury duty, to your voting. Um, they would like that all in one thing because if they can create a vast data lake of you in real time, that is the optimal predictive analytics, both on your past behavior and their prediction for what your future behavior will be. I, I actually put out on social media last week, like, will there be a digital identity for your avatar in the virtual world? Will they link? The goal, I think, in the push for mixed reality is that they are actually working in ways that that you will link dimensionally virtual spaces and physical spaces. So if you have a virtual representation of your home office and you're in your home office and you move the pencil can to the other side of your desk, when you're next back in your virtual space office, it will be on, on the side you placed it on. Wow. And I don't know the technology of how they're doing that, but that is in their headspace. Their goal is to actually create, and I don't know if it's string theory, like I don't exactly how that happens, but is to have a fully censored environment that your physical space mirrors this virtual space. Now, I know that in the physical space, the goal is these interoperable identities, um, self-sovereign identities, what they're called. They're being sold to us as uh, privacy protecting, um, that, that we can own our own data and that we will be much more valuable. And sort of what I'm trying to reframe the conversation is to say there's a backdoor that's been built into blockchain. Uh, it's called the Enigma Protocol that MIT developed that allows them to query on encrypted data. So the futures markets that are coming online, which is the finance side, which is the Goldman Sachs, the UBS Bank, the Deutsche Bank, the Vatican Bank, the SoftBank, these folks to move their capital in human futures, because what is being set up now are futures markets in behavior change. And that is necessitated because if we imagine that the last global economic crash was related to housing, that they created these synthetic debt obligations to um, to channel global capital. And as that fell apart in the decade following, the wealth has only continued to become more concentrated. The next synthetic product of debt that they can use, the only thing is really bigger than housing are human bodies. And so human bodies are being repackaged as future debt obligations. And, and I believe that that is inherently what is behind the controlled demolition of the global economic system is to make us dependent on the state to offer a UBI as part of this money to stay in the game and that we will be controlled through our digital identity systems and we will be become debt commodities burdens on the state. And through a new system that is being put in place called pay for success finance, um, which are literally privatizing the entire social welfare system and remaking it as an investment opportunity in human capital, that they can securitize us and gamble on, put us on pathways to keep us busy of self-improvement, whether that is improving your health, improving your mental health, getting off of drugs, taking drugs, you know, now they're, they're legalizing all these psychedelics, you know, managing you as a, a series, a continuum of care program, um, according to measured behavior change, and then betting on whether or not you'll comply. And so that is their new game. That is the ultimate game that they are playing is both you as a real person and potentially you as a virtual character. Uh, will you comply with the pathway that you have been put on? 
and they are swapping the global prison industrial complex for an open air prison where instead of guards, you now have social workers, healthcare providers, and educators. And they're the ones who are doing the guarding and making sure that you stay on your pathway of self-improvement on your UBI. And, and I, I equate it largely to looking at what happened to indigenous communities where, and that's why AI as the settler colonizer is that, you know, when this manifest destiny, you know, premise involved removal of the existing occupants who were connected to these ancestral lands into different areas that were removing their economic independence, removing their culture, removing their like direct relationships into the environment, making them dependents on the state and then breaking treaties and not fulfilling obligations and breaking down families and cultural traditions. And that the whole premise that is advancing under Agenda 21 is moving us into mega cities. And then like, essentially we're all, we're all Lakota, <laughs> you know, at this, I mean, that, that is the fate that befalls us unless we can kind of reckon with that past history and bring it forward into this, like, what are the implications of the ghost dance period for this moment in which synthetic biology, virtualization, militarization could push us into a virtual world, or, or at least our children. Yes, exactly. And these are hard concepts for people to grasp. The global power elite have plans for the world's future that you research and document in great detail. In order to understand these plans, a new vocabulary is required, which most people don't have. For instance, you write about, quote, players on a hexagonally tiled board of GPS coordinates. What does this mean, and what is the significance of hexagons, that is, six-sided tiles? Oh, well, it's interesting. Um, so there are a lot of layers to this, actually. Um, I mean, in military simulations, hexagons are apparently like the most efficient use of tiling space. And so, you know, even down to bees and the honeycombs that they're in hexagons because it's the most efficient use of material. Um you know, it's interesting because there is an element in play here that sounds incredibly sensational, but is accurate of a push towards what they call transhumanism, which is sort of this cybernetic remaking of humans in interfacing with uh, technological and mechanical systems. Both people know about like Elon Musk is, you know, trotting out his neural link implant, but even down to sort of injectable nanorobotics, you know, which are, which are happening. So, they, these transhumanists talk about that they essentially sort of want to hook us into a, a giant consciousness, like a hive mind. And so we need to look at both how they understand nature, like bees and drones and the hive, that they imagine a future in which um, individuality is subjected into this sort of homogenous globalist prospect, you know, and the hexagons are part of that. I will also say um, the hexagons are, it's a motif. You'll see it everywhere once you start looking for it. If you look at a cube, like as a line drawing, and you pivot it, it actually becomes a hexagon. And so hexagons are also often used in blockchain as the graphics, um, both as these blocks and as the hexagon, as a tilted cube and with a hexagon outline. And so the blocks are, again, essentially breaking people down into just tiny bits and bytes of data, like virtualizing them as digital assets. So there's 
there's that. Um, the hexagonal tile element is used in military simulation wargaming planning. And even the like ride sharing companies like Uber talk about like hexing the world. They use their coordinate systems in terms of connecting drivers to ride requests using this tile-based hexagonal system. And I had put in like a recent, one of my recent blog posts, even like the Settlers of Catan. You know, there are a number of like tabletop board gaming systems that are hexagonally based. So it is, it is about, um, you know, it is about using efficient use of space. It has the military elements. Uh, the GPS piece of this is that this global prison planet, sort of the internet of bodies that is being spoken about by the World Economic Forum and, and major, you know, global consulting firms, is that it is tracked not only by the 5G, like the telecommunications cellular infrastructure, but actually through satellite systems. And we are seeing those satellites going up now, um, you know, satellite whole constellations to track people that are in non-dense urban areas to continue to track people through these GPS coordinates and uh, sensor-based systems, which, you know, even at a very basic level, a phone is one of these sensors. And early last year in the, the COVID unfolding, there was an op-ed in the Harvard Business Review where they were talking about vaccine distribution as an equity issue. And they were saying the plans were to track the children in Africa uh, through a company called Macro Eyes from space to predict the vaccine uptake. And so they were sort of straight out saying that the plans were to track populations for desired behaviors. And again, I, I, I often say we need to take into consideration what is the power structure there, you know, cui bono, who is benefiting from the existing power structure and how it is being rolled out and to sort of interrogate, as you said, the vocabulary of equity, right? Is that truly equity that your children are non-consensually tracked from space, you know, to pursue a certain behavior that that Harvard Business School interests desire? And and I think that if you actually dig into what equity is and, and consent, that you you would probably question that premise. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's hexagons. I mean, I will also say there are some, you know, there's some stuff going on in terms of like long-standing secret brotherhoods and other things. So this idea of hexing something, that's, that's another element. Like there are often, there are different ways of using language, both from a propaganda standpoint, from a double entendre standpoint, from a diversionary standpoint, and then some that are symbolic. So I do believe that this idea of hex and the historic meaning of hexing is, is layered in there as well. It's at multiple levels. I'm speaking with pioneering independent researcher Allison McDowell. Today's show, Gaming Our Lives, Pay for Success Finance. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You made a comment on Twitter that I can't locate at the moment, but it had to do with your feeling that your research had catapulted you 15, 20 years or more into the future. What does the world look like in, say, 20 years, assuming these global plans come to fruition? Well, I keep hoping that they're not going to be able to scale this. <laughs> so I will just say that. Up. I mean, I think a lot of people find what I talk about um, depressing. And I will, I will say many of these plans have been contemplated 
you know, even since the late 19th century, the idea of technocracy and industrial engineered societies, and then really amping up in the 70s with Brzezinski and the Trilateral Commission, and, you know, in the 40s with cybernetics. So all of these ideas have been bubbling along for quite some time, and they have not yet fully manifested. So I'm, I'm not saying that this is a an absolute foregone conclusion. But um Actually, my, my child was saying, like in 2018, Mom, you have to write this as a story because it's just too hard for people to understand. So I have a blog. It's called wrenchinthegears.com, and I have a series of posts. It's seven posts called uh, Building Sanctuary, actually. And it was laying out what I saw, um, a scenario in which this, this would play out. And, you know, Philadelphia is a center of the heroin epidemic, and I sort of opened the scene of this scenario in the last several years, and it's gotten even worse under lockdowns and people having, you know, more and more stress and mental health challenges, is that, you know, we were having people, you know, ODing in the parks and the librarians were being set up with Narcan to try to give a basic line assistance to people. And so this scenario was that there are sort of large warehouses where dispossessed people are essentially hooked up into virtual reality headsets and in very minimal accommodations, you know, gulags, dorms, warehoused, and then provided very minimal physical amenities, but then told to live in a virtual space. And so that is my fear is that the collapse of the malls, the retail, all of the big box stores, and then everybody was like moved into the Walmarts and put in VR headsets. And, you know, there's some very striking images actually on the internet that sort of depict that, this sort of dystopic future, that here's a UBI. If you actually want to eat real food, you're going to only be able to afford gruel, but in virtual reality, you know, get the steak. It's like the matrix sort of situation. And I, I do feel like we're moving towards the matrix. There's a tremendous amount where we talk about the military in Hollywood of predicting programming. And there are, there are folks in my social media circles who are much um, savvier about aligning all of the movies that, that have been sort of laying out the pieces of this, the, you know, the minority reports and, and many other films. And in this future, it was kids. I had two sisters and they were stuck on these Chromebooks and these feedback loops. And the one was the rebellious. And then the one was just a striver trying to get ahead, trying to earn the badges and get the points so that they could, you know, help their parents out. And the younger one was pushed into self-harm. And so they were trying to find a social worker that, that would actually help them. And the people in the resistance movement were the disposable people, the people who were never put on blockchain because they weren't even valued at that lower level. The people who were, you know, veterans or people who had disabilities or, um, you know, the, the poor, the disposable ones. And shortly after I wrote that piece, like less than six weeks later, uh, Philadelphia was doing a major push out of encampments, largely of people who were suffering from addiction as part of a big gentrification process. And, you know, I went down to, I knew some people who were organizing in that space and I was, I was down there and it was just like my, my story was coming to life. These are the people from my book. Actually at the time there were these two sisters from my story, there were three, but they showed up these little girls in school uniforms and they said, you know, do you know where we can get food? And so ever since that point, we talk about time and continuums, but I'm like, is there some continuum? Like, I hope I didn't manifest this by writing this story. I mean, I'm sure I'm not making myself that important. I know I'm not that important, but there is this sense of what we feed, we grow. And so I'm, I'm trying to keep a balance between informing people, giving them an intelligence of what 
sociopathic billionaires have in mind to do to the world, whether they can accomplish it or not, and then manifesting an alternative to that. Like what is a manifesto of life and affirmation of natural life that is counter to a synthetically engineered version of life, like GMO life writ large with nanotech? It sounds like what you are describing in the global elite's own words is a negation of the natural world and a forced leap into an artificial synthetic one, and that this is already taking place. According to mystics, the portal or door into the sacred, or rather the sacred experience, is through nature. So a virtual reality sounds anti-spiritual and anti-life. Yes. I mean, and that's the amazing thing for me was I have been working on this. People say years. It hasn't really been years. You know, I, I don't want to lift myself up as the expert because I think we're all experts in different parts. But I, I really been my blog started in 2016. And so, you know, I was trying different things because it really is a structure. I had someone sort of give a comment recently saying like I had a just one narrow focus. And I'm like, no, actually what I'm trying to give people is a schema because it touches on everything from food to empire to poverty to health. It's, it's, it's a structure. And, um, it is an anti-life structure. And so the people who, when this all happened a year ago, March, who connected with me, it was a mix of people in holistic medicine, um, artists and musicians, but also people of faith and all different faith practices. And what's very challenging in this system where the plan is for the pay for success finance, the privatization of social welfare, the uh, turning of poverty and trauma into a profit center is that many people offering welfare services, it happens through faith communities, all kinds of faith communities. And so they are being pulled in into this program, uh, I think some knowingly and some not knowingly, to be harnessed to this anti-life program. And so I've been actually trying to speak to people of all different faiths to say, like, this is this moment of reckoning of, of the scorched path or the green path. Like, are we, are we pursuing a, a program of life, of natural life in a sense of something that is beyond ourselves, our limited human understanding that there is a greater power at work in the world, a greater, more magnificent thing? Or are we walking the path that, that, Humans know all of the things, the scientists know all the things. We are just a machine to be engineered at both our cellular level and all the way up to our social systems and that we will just be engineered. And so to me, it is standing in, in a place of spirit and sacredness. I sort of frame it as sacred and profane. And understanding this as a global program, this is a global takeover, attempted global coup, is that it's people throughout the world and whatever their faith traditions are that need to stand in their practice and access these larger energetic systems to affirm life against anti-life, but then to have solidarity with one another in this moment. Because to me, that is the supreme connection is if we understand that we are in a game, that the end will be AI settler colonization and the erasure of natural life, not just for human beings, but all natural life from the moss to the eagles, you know, to all animism out there, that, that that will join us together if we understand that. And if we understand what is happening as a colonial project and an imperial project and a military project, that it is a, an effort towards peace and faith and um, right relationships. 
And that in, in that way, if we could step into that space, that there is this profound potential for a larger reckoning and awakening. I have enjoyed videos of your short ceremonies at locations where this virtual world is being created. It feels like you are setting your intentions in these acts. How would you describe the intention of your ceremonies, and where did you get the idea for these? Well, so my training, my my background is in art history and cultural landscapes. So I never thought that this was the landscape that I would map. But to me, I map a lot of things online, like LinkedIn, grants, 990s, webinars, white papers. But then where possible, I like to actually go and see it because, you know, I like to go into the cubicle at Harvard and know where the social impact bonds came from because they came from a person and a place. And it's often the banality of evil, right? Like you, you it's not some, you know, dragon in a lair in a cave. It's just an office park, right? These things get plotted out in office parks. And um, so I had the gift actually this summer of spending some time um, on sacred Lakota land. And I had a friend who said, you know, we have to pray. We have to have come from a place of gratitude and we need to pray because this is big and you should take medicine from the land back with you. And, and I, you know, I wasn't sure. And, and they were pretty insistent. They're like, nope, this is what you have to do. So I'm like, I will try. So I, I had been working on a, trying to set up a garden and there was sagebrush there. And so I, I cleared out underneath the sage. It's very windy there. And so there had been like some trash and stuff and it, it's very dry and things don't really decay. So like I was pulling out under the sagebrush, like bits and pieces of foil or plastic and things. And then when I got it all cleaned up towards my last days there, I pruned some of the branches and I took it with me. And on the way back, I was visiting these places. I said, I want to see this. Like, I want to see Berkshire Hathaway. I want to see the Lumina Foundation. I want to, you know, I want to see Knowledge Works and and just to, to see them because like, goodness knows, I don't know when I'm going to be able to get out on the open road again. And it was rainy and I was in Indianapolis and, and I had a lovely friend, you know, we built these crazy relationships online who's in India. And they're like, Allison, you need to sage Eli Lilly. <laughs> and so I'm like... Okay, so I go to the drugstore and I buy a lighter and I'm terrible with the light. But, you know, I was just saying we don't consent because I think that's one of these things. And I'm not really a someone who really focuses on the um, secret, you know, the conspiracy side of things. But they would say, oh, they have to ask you. They have to tell you what they're doing. So I'm like, I'm going to just show up and say I don't consent to the human capital bond program. I, you know, I don't consent to being a virtualized character in a military video game. And as the mothers of the world, I'm standing here to say you don't have our permission to do this. And I think so many people feel overwhelmed. They feel like, I know something really big is going on. I don't know what to do. I can't start a whole independent community by myself. Like, there's not a bunch of people to organize with. Like, what do I do? And so I'm saying you don't have to do all the things. Like, sometimes if you just step out and into to saying what you want, um, you know, and I don't know. I'm not saying that this is the perfect answer. It's just what I chose to do was to see it, to witness it. And, and that's something, you know... When I was looking at like James Baldwin, you know, he was a witness to these things. Like someone has to witness it, to stand witness and to refuse. And so that is in my power. And um, that put that responsibility on me. I'm trying to do the best I can. And if it empowers other people to surface these things in, in where they are, because it's all over the world, 
I do feel like the world is out of balance. A lot of this is about electrical engineering, electrical system, signals intelligence. Maybe there's some way of putting forth a powerful intention to write things, to acknowledge the brokenness and to say we want to make things right and to ask for guidance in making them right. If you did that times hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people from a peaceful, loving place, that that could make a difference. And and who's to say it wouldn't? One of the places I went, there's a lot happening around Baltimore, and I went to where the Catonsville Mine, where the Berrigans and their supporters burned the draft records in that parking lot. And there was a historic marker by a library, but it, it wasn't that parking lot, and I'd seen it in the clip, and I was very moved by that action that they took and, and the consequences of that action. And it turns out as we were pulling out of the library parking lot, I saw from the footage opposite side of the street where it had happened, it's just a parking lot, right? It's just a parking lot. And so we pulled in and I said, I wanna just put down some tobacco and say thank you. And and in doing that in this small little strip of grass, there was a piece of wire there, like gauge wire, like a you know a five gallon handle bucket kind of wire. And it was in the shape of a G. You know, like, and to me, that's, that was a sign. Like God was in this place. Like however you imagine God or the creator or this larger force that the ripples of that action, even though it, to many people who might not know was just a parking lot are still there. Alison McDowell, I am so impressed with how you have mastered these difficult subjects. Thank you so much. Um, well, thank you for the opportunity to share. And like I said, I'm working on a, on a glossary in a, in a better organized website. So hopefully I'll have that together soon. I've been speaking with Allison McDowell. Today's show has been Gaming Our Lives, Pay for Success Finance. Allison McDowell is a pioneering independent researcher. Her work interrogates the global finance and technology interests that, under the rising biosecurity state, are advancing a transhumanist program that would virtualize humans as digital commodities to be fed into futures markets to profit hedge funds. She asserts that it's time to unite from a place of love and spirit to halt an artificial intelligence coup of the natural world. There's a scorched path and a green path. It's time to choose. Visit her website at wrenchinthegears.com. That's wrenchinthegears.com. Access her videos on YouTube by searching for Allison McDowell. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yaromako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at G&B Radio. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready? the real revolution which is the evolution of the mind if you seek then you shall find that we all come from the divine you dig what i'm saying now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all you understand what i'm saying this is a call for all you sleeping souls wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit.
you're a sniper, trying to steal your life.